You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 314 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich, and once again I'll be flying solo, since Tracy is AWOL. Just kidding, she's actually in Arkansas with the rest of her family to celebrate her dad's 80th birthday. And, um, yeah, I'm here in Colorado holding down the fort. And since we wanted to keep the story moving forward toward the morning of July 1st, 1863, I'll be handling the recording duties by myself this weekend. All right, for those of you still listening, we have, in my humble opinion, some really interesting stuff to cover in this show. And this show will be the last of the Gettysburg campaign episodes. If you've noticed, we decided to split up the story arc into four parts, the campaign, the battle, the retreat, and the Gettysburg Address. So yes, this show will be the Gettysburg Campaign, part the 18th, and the next episode will be the Battle of Gettysburg, part the 1st. Obviously, we weren't kidding when we said we will probably spend nearly a year on this entire story arc. We've always anticipated that Gettysburg would be kind of the crown jewel of the podcast, and now that we're here, we want to do it justice. You know, long after we're done with this project, we hope people will still be listening to these episodes and going, wow, cool. Okay, well, to get back to the story, as you guys will recall, at the end of the last show, it was June 28th, and 47-year-old Major General George Gordon Meade had just received an order to take command of the Army of the Potomac. And it was an order. Meade was not asked if he wanted the command. Three or four other generals had previously been sounded out about taking the top spot, and had already turned it down. So now, in the middle of a campaign, at a moment of crisis, once Abraham Lincoln decided to change commanders, there was no asking. The orders were cut, relieving Hooker as commander of the Army of the Potomac and appointing Meade in his place. 
At 7 a.m. on the morning of the 28th, George Meade wired General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, saying, The order placing me in command of this army is received. As a soldier, I obey it, and to the utmost of my ability, will execute it. On June 29th, Brigadier General John Gibbon wrote his wife from Frederick, Maryland, saying, We reached here last night, and I was delighted, on the road, to hear that General Meade was in command of the army. I now feel my confidence restored, and believe we shall whip those fellows. By and large, Gibbon's confident tone was echoed all through the officer corps of the Army of the Potomac. Marcena Patrick, the Army's Provost Marshal, recorded in his diary, quote, Of course, this has caused great commotion, but as yet, I have heard no regret. It would have actually been surprising if Patrick had heard any regrets, since most of the Army's top generals had already made it known that Meade was their pick to get the top spot. And now, in the midst of a fast-developing crisis, with the Confederate invasion of Pennsylvania in full swing, well, they had little choice but to support Meade, since he was their choice, after all. But while George Meade's peers thought highly of him and had recommended him for command of the army, the reaction to Meade's appointment within the ranks of the Army of the Potomac was a mixture of apathy and worry. This was the third command change in eight months, and most of the rank and file greeted the news with a shrug. What seemed to concern everyone the most was the timing of the change. A New York Tribune reporter, in a letter to his editor, said that the news had been, quote, received with apathetic indifference by the army, although many are loud in denouncing the act at this particular moment, end quote. Everyone realized that Meade, in taking over the Army of the Potomac in the very midst of a campaign, had inherited a monumental task. In fact, in the orders appointing him to Army Command, Halleck summed it up neatly by telling Meade that, quote, No one ever received a more important command. Halleck also reminded Meade that the Army of the Potomac was the covering shield for Washington, as well as the maneuver force confronting the rebel invaders. What that meant in practical terms was that Meade had to be careful. His mission was both to go after and drive the Confederate invaders back, while at the same time keeping between the rebels and Washington in order to protect the capital. In addition, left unsaid, but a very real consideration nonetheless, was that following the twin disasters at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, the Army of the Potomac could not afford to lose another major battle, especially one waged on northern soil. By any measure, then, the assignment laid upon Meade's shoulders was daunting, but to his credit, he rose quickly to the great challenge. As he later explained, quote, 
my object being at all hazards to compel Lee to loose his hold on the Susquehanna and meet him in battle at some point. It was my firm determination, never for an instant deviated from, to give battle wherever and as soon as I could possibly find the enemy. At Frederick on that Sunday, the 28th of June, as Joe Hooker began to pack his things, the new commanding general's personal effects were moved up from 5th Corps headquarters. George Meade spent most of that day poring over maps of Maryland and Pennsylvania. They weren't nearly as detailed as current maps, of course, and some were downright useless, but nevertheless Meade began to formulate a plan. His first problem was the fact that Confederate troops were threatening to cross the Susquehanna River well north of him, and so the Pennsylvania state capital of Harrisburg was at serious risk of capture. To put a stop to this dangerous enemy movement, Meade decided to keep his own tired troops going north hard, with the Severn Federal Infantry Corps spread out on a broad front so that they would reach positions just south of the Pennsylvania line by the evening of June 29th. In quickly formulating a course of action, Meade was very much on his own, because as he later reported, I received from Hooker no intimation of any plan or any views that he may have had up to that moment. Evidently, in the relatively brief transfer of command that morning, Meade was briefed regarding where federal units were located and on the latest news about what the Confederates were up to, but apparently Hooker had no clear-cut operational plan he was pursuing and which Meade could build upon. Remember we said in the last episode that Marcena Patrick had noted that Hooker appeared to be a man without a plan. So Meade's assertion rings true, that on June 28th, he had to start from scratch in figuring out what to do with the army and how to confront Lee. In drawing up marching orders for the army on the 28th, Meade was assisted by Major General Daniel Butterfield, Hooker's chief of staff. In fact, with the exception of some personal aides, Meade kept Hooker's command staff unchanged. This included the important position of chief of staff. Normally, the chief of staff departs with his boss, but with this change of command happening on the fly, so to speak, and with Butterfield knowing so much about the Army of the Potomac's current operations, Meade had little choice but to keep him on, especially since Meade did attempt to hurriedly recruit several candidates for the post, but each officer he approached had compelling reasons not to change positions at this critical time. And just as a bit of foreshadowing that will drop in at this point, but unfortunately, Dan Butterfield, as a close buddy of Fighting Joe's, was a controversial figure, and later on proved to be no friend of George Meade's. At any rate, by the evening of the 28th, orders were on their way to every one of the Federal Infantry Corps telling them to continue advancing north toward the Pennsylvania line. 
John Reynolds would command the Army's left wing, consisting of Reynolds' own 1st Corps, plus the 3rd under Dan Sickles, and 11th under Oliver Howard. Reynolds would lead those three corps toward Emmitsburg, near the state line, and just a few miles south of Gettysburg, while the Army's other corps moved toward Tawnytown and Westminster. Temperatures soared during those final days of June, and on the roads leading north, hundreds of Union soldiers collapsed from the heat. Exhausting marches were the order of the day as the men covered great distances. For example, Hancock's 2nd Corps marched more than 30 miles on June 29th. Despite the heat and hard marching, the men's spirits were lifted by the reception they received from the loyal citizens of Maryland and later Pennsylvania, who lined the roadways, cheering on the boys in blue, waving flags, and handing out food and water. A sergeant in the 1st Minnesota remembered how, quote, Flags, handkerchiefs, aprons, and sunbonnets were waved from windows, doorsteps, and front yard fences as we tramped hurriedly on. These things had a soothing effect on our disturbed feelings, and a little later, when we made a short halt, women and children came with baskets of buttered bread and real doughnuts, pails of water, and jugs of buttermilk. The boys cheered them with hearty goodwill, As they got closer to the Pennsylvania line, there was a growing sense in the ranks that the army was heading toward a showdown with the rebels. Meade also believed that battle was imminent. In a letter to his wife, he declared, I am going straight at them, and will settle this thing one way or the other. The men are in good spirits, and with God's blessing, I hope to be successful. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Through the book The Killer Angels and movie Gettysburg, thousands, shoot, tens of thousands of people are familiar with the dramatic story of how, on the night of June 28, 1863, Robert E. Lee learned vital intelligence about the movement of the Federal Army from a spy named Harrison. But both the book and the movie are works of fiction, and so just about everything people think they know about the spy Harrison isn't the truth. 
Well, he did bring news about the Army of the Potomac to Longstreet and then to Lee that night, but that's about it. Here, other than to say he wasn't an actor for Pete's sake, we don't want to get too far out into the weeds with this, but we will let you know that if you're interested in knowing the true story about Henry T. Harrison, there's an excellent article in the November 2004 issue of America's Civil War magazine written by Harrison's great-grandson. So, there you go. Anyway, as you guys will recall, by June 28th, Lee had already sent Yule onto the Susquehanna, and, assuming the Federal Army was still below the Potomac, Lee had also laid plans for A.P. Hill and Longstreet to follow Yule. Longstreet would follow Yule up through Carlisle, while Hill would move in Early's footsteps by way of York. Well, as we know, Jubal Early's plan to capture the bridge at Wrightsville went up in smoke, but to the north, Dick Yule himself was poised to strike for the river and Harrisburg. But on June 29th, instead of marching east out of Carlisle toward the river and Harrisburg, Yule's troops actually left town, heading back the way they'd come. That's because, as we said, Yule had received a recall order from Lee, telling him to break off the march on Harrisburg and reverse direction in order to join the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia in assembling at Cashtown on the eastern slope of South Mountain between Chambersburg and Gettysburg. Well, of course, Lee's recall orders to Dick Yule were a direct result of that news the Confederate Army commander had received from the spy Harrison. If you aren't familiar with the story, the short version is that at around 10 o'clock on the night of Sunday, June 28th, Confederate guards brought a scruffy-looking character in civilian clothes to Longstreet's headquarters near Chambersburg. It was Harrison, who was in Longstreet's employ as a spy. Now, as old Pete listened to Harrison, he immediately realized the man needed to be taken straight to Army headquarters to tell his news directly to Robert E. Lee. And so, an aide took Harrison over to Messer Smith's woods, where General Lee agreed to see him and heard him out. What Harrison told Lee was that the Federal Army rather than still being massed below the Potomac in Virginia, as Lee had assumed, had actually begun crossing the river three days earlier and was now well up into Maryland. Lee doesn't seem to have been panicked or even greatly alarmed by this news that the Yankees were only a hard day's march south of the Mason-Dixon line. After all, one of the reasons he had struck north into Pennsylvania was to draw the enemy army after him. But what did trouble Lee was that he was hearing vital intelligence about the whereabouts of the Army of the Potomac from a spy rather than from his trusted cavalry chief, Jeb Stuart. If Harrison was right and Hooker started his army across the Potomac on June 25th, then Lee should have heard about it no later than the 26th. Robert E. Lee had come to trust Jeb Stuart to be the eyes and ears of the army. Never before had Stuart let him down, and the failure here was unfortunate, to say the least. 
Even now, Lee had no idea where Stuart was, nor any idea of the whereabouts of the enemy's forces beyond what Longstreet's spy had just told him, and that information was already 24 hours old. With Stuart missing in action, Lee realized he had no choice but to act on the spy's news and act quickly. Truth be told, it looked as if Joe Hooker had stolen a 48-hour march on him. Lee immediately dictated orders that would bring his scattered army back together, issuing instructions for the three corps to converge east of South Mountain at the small hamlet of Cashtown between Chambersburg and Gettysburg. And so on June 29th, Hills and Longstreet's corps set out from the Chambersburg area, marching east towards South Mountain. They were later followed by Allegheny Johnson's division of Yule's corps, which had been up at Shippensburg. Yule, for his part, with Rhodes' division, would march from Carlisle to either Cashtown or Gettysburg, quote, as circumstances might dictate. And then Jubal Early, leading Yule's 3rd Division, received orders to march west from his present location north of York to link up with Rhodes as Rhodes' division tramped down from Carlisle. If you didn't keep up with all that, that's okay. The upshot is that Lee was bringing his scattered army together, and the place he'd chosen as its assembly point was Cashtown, eight miles northwest of Gettysburg. Up until this point, Lee's campaign had exhibited all the markings of a huge raid, that is, marching virtually unopposed through the enemy's country, gathering up much-needed supplies, and perhaps bagging a northern state capital in the bargain. But now Lee's campaign took on a more ominous character, as the Confederate commander began to assemble his army in preparation for a major battle. Okay, so not to get hung up on the whole spy Harrison thing, but before we move on, we do want to point out, again going back to the book The Killer Angels and movie Gettysburg, but it's almost certainly the case that Harrison's report did not include the information that Meade had replaced Hooker as the commander of the Army of the Potomac. The timing of the events just doesn't work out. When Harrison passed through the federal lines, Hooker was still in command of the army. More significantly, in Lee's subsequent correspondence with Ewell, Lee made reference to Hooker, not Meade. In addition, in neither of his two reports on the Gettysburg campaign, did Lee mention that Harrison notified him of the change in command of the enemy army. Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Fremantle, a British observer with the Confederate Army, recorded in his diary that Longstreet told him on the evening of June 30th that he had, quote, just received intelligence that Hooker had been disrated and that Meade was appointed in his place, end quote. So, although it's fictional drama, it's good theater to have the spy Harrison deliver the news that Hooker was out and Meade was in command of the Union Army. 
In reality, it appears that the Confederates didn't find out about the change until a few days later. All right, so speaking of George Meade taking command of the Army of the Potomac, one of the things we need to talk about in this episode is the Pipe Creek Line and the Pipe Creek Circular. What you need to know about the background to this Pipe Creek business is that after taking command of the Army, Meade's greatest worry was that the Confederates would cross, or had already crossed, the Susquehanna. To prevent that from happening, or to counter it if it had already happened, Meade knew he had to keep the Army of the Potomac moving north into Pennsylvania, or in other words, right toward the rebels. The thinking behind this was that Lee wouldn't be able to continue with his plans if he had to turn and confront the oncoming Federal Army, right? Right. So, on June 29th, and again on the 30th, Meade sent out fresh sets of orders to his Corps commanders, telling the 1st and 11th Corps to cross the state line and move toward Gettysburg, while the 3rd Corps was to stay back in support at Emmitsburg. So that was the left wing, commanded by Reynolds. Then the 5th Corps would move up, in parallel 10 miles to the east, to Hanover, with the 6th Corps in reserve behind them at Manchester. The 2nd and 12th Corps would plant themselves midway between the others, at Tawnytown, just below the state line, and two taverns, just beyond the state line. That'll all make much more sense if you're looking at a map, but even without a map, what you need to understand is that as long as Meade believed Lee was driving east, to the Susquehanna and Harrisburg, he, Meade, would continue driving north on a broad front, moving, with his own army well in hand, so as to confront the Confederates and thereby derail Lee's plans. But just in case, if Lee suddenly turned and struck, like some coiled snake, then Meade wanted to be prepared. This is where the Pipe Creek line enters our story. If Lee turned suddenly and maneuvered offensively to strike the Army of the Potomac, Meade wanted to be ready, so he had his engineer officers seek out good ground on which to fight a defensive battle. That position, so Meade believed, was soon located, a few miles south of the Pennsylvania line near Tawnytown, on high ground overlooking Pipe Creek, a tributary of the Monocacy River. Thinking this would be an ideal defensive position, Meade instructed the Army's chief engineer, Governor K. Warren, to lay out a line of battle there in case it was needed. So this is where things stood on June 30th. Meade was continuing to move the Army north, but the Pipe Creek line had been scouted out and was meant to be used as a strong defensive position just in case should Lee suddenly turn and strike offensively. However, shortly before noon on the 30th, Meade received an urgent wire from Washington alerting him that the Confederates were, quote, 
falling back suddenly from the vicinity of Harrisburg. York has been evacuated. Carlisle is being evacuated. End quote. This, of course, was Lee pulling Yule and Jubal Early back to join the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia, and it was precisely what George Meade wanted to hear. Remember, his drive northward had been designed, quote, to compel Lee to loose his hold on the Susquehanna. Now, with this news from Washington, Meade knew that had been accomplished. And this is when, we think, the Pipe Creek line morphed from being a contingency plan to be used in case of an emergency to now being George Meade's preferred spot to fight the battle that appeared to be imminent. With Lee having loosed his hold on the Susquehanna, Meade knew the Confederate commander would have little choice now but to march to confront the threatening Federal army. With Lee on the offensive, Meade was perfectly willing to fight defensively. And there were many advantages to adopting this course. Logistically, the Federals would be close to a railhead and supply source at Westminster, Maryland, while Lee's line of communication and supply was already stretched through the Cumberland and Shenandoah Valleys back to Virginia. Then, tactically, as had been clearly demonstrated at Fredericksburg, a prepared, defending force was tough to dislodge from a strong position, and Meade had already found that strong position, Pipe Creek. And, not least, surely a consideration for Meade was the fact that having just taken over a few days before, fighting a defensive battle would be much easier from a command standpoint for him, rather than trying to maneuver his army offensively. And so, to get ready to fight a defensive battle behind Pipe Creek, Meade had his headquarters staff prepare what became known as the Pipe Creek Circular. Sent out early on the morning of July 1st, the Circular instructed his subordinates that should they encounter Lee, and should Lee attack, they were to fall back to this position, drawing the Confederates toward it. Later, critics of Meade would claim this Pipe Creek Circular was proof positive that Meade didn't want to fight at Gettysburg, while his defenders would claim that he wasn't wedded to this Pipe Creek position should other defensible ground be found, as it would be at Gettysburg. Well, we think the truth is somewhere in between, that fighting behind Pipe Creek started out as a contingency plan, but that after the Confederates withdrew from the Susquehanna, it became Meade's preferred spot to fight the upcoming battle. However, as we shall see, largely because, crucially, left-wing commander John Reynolds never received the Pipe Creek circular, a full-blown battle started up at the crossroads town of Gettysburg on July 1st. And George Meade, even though Gettysburg wasn't where he'd wanted to fight, would nevertheless stick with it and see it through. And this is where we'll leave things for now. Both armies are now marching toward a collision. Lee knew it. Meade knew it. 
they were still uncertain about where the battle might take place. It wasn't as if either had stuck his finger on the map, pointed at Gettysburg, and said, Here is where we shall fight. But nevertheless, as Wednesday, July 1st, 1863, dawned cloudy and warm, the stage was set for a historic clash of arms. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Beneath a Northern Sky, A Short History of the Gettysburg Campaign by Stephen E. Woodworth. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. There's no new members episode this weekend, mainly because I didn't feel like doing one myself. You know, truth be told, after doing hundreds of episodes with two people and getting used to that, it's all sorts of discombobulating to sit down to try and do it by yourself. I mean, each time I sit down to do it, I get as nervous as the proverbial cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Anyway, uh, we do want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, who are Lenny, Gavin, Mark, Kyler, Anthony, Vincent, Leo, and David. And then thanks to Perry B. for his donation, and a big thank you to David W. for his special gift, which arrived on our doorstep this past week, and which was a Civil War war game, which made me happy, happy, happy. All right, then, as the curtain comes down on this show, I will take the opportunity to remind you that the lovely music you hear at the beginning and at the end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water by Spiritwood Music, and we use it with their kind permission. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you tune in again next time when we'll get started with the actual Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.